This is a Kitty Pod production. Mary Beth Rowe was born in the Schenectady County town of Dwaynesburg on September 11, 1942, to Alton and Ruth Rowe. The male half of the parents was fighting in World War II, and her mother was working at the time of her birth. Thus, Mary Beth was passed among the family's relatives, one of whom was an aunt who let drop that she was, quote, an unwanted baby. Very little is known about Mary Beth's childhood. She was known to throw the odd tantrum now and again, and whenever that happened, her father, who had followed up his wartime experience by working as a pressman at the nearby General Electric factory in Schenectady, would chase her upstairs to her room with either a fly swatter or a ruler and order her to remain in her room, quote, until she got over her crying spell. At least that's what he termed it. Whether this constituted child abuse is still up for debate, especially as she defended her father's actions at her trial by saying that he was suffering from arthritis at the time. Likely excuse. Rose high school years weren't much to write home about, classmates and those who remembered her as an average student, even going so far as to be described as a non-entity. Rose high school years weren't much to write home about. Classmates and others remember her as an average student, even going so far as to be described as a non-entity. She wasn't popular, but at the same time, she wasn't loathed either. On her graduation in 1961, there was only one word next to her name, temper. Rowe had aspirations to attend college after her high school days ended, but her mediocre grades prevented her from doing so, and thus she set off to work menial jobs, finally landing a gig as a nurse's aide at Ellis Hospital in Schenectady. She married Joseph Tinning, who worked at the nearby GE plant like her father before her, in 1965, and whom she met on a blind date several years earlier. The Tinnings gave birth to two children, Barbara and Joseph Jr. Sometime after settling down into parenthood is where the criminal streak began, with more children getting pumped out and brought in from the outside all the while. As with Gary Evans, the subject of most of August's episodes, Radford University's Department of Psychology has provided as complete a profile of this subject as possible. Thanks to them for providing it online for anyone's interest. On the day after Christmas 1971, Mary Beth Tinning gave birth to her third child, Jennifer. Sadly, the latter only lived eight days as she died from hemorrhagic meningitis and multiple brain abscesses from her birth just three days into 1972. As if that wasn't enough, Tinning's father died of a heart attack the previous month at the age of 54. Two and a half weeks later, Joseph Jr., the youngest of the Tinning children was rushed to the hospital, only to die of what was termed as cardiopulmonary arrest. On March 1st, Mary Beth claimed that their last surviving child, Barbara, was suffering from convulsions. She was likewise rushed to the hospital, but died the next day due to complications from Rye syndrome, a brain disease which quickly gets worse over time. 
The summer of 1972 proved an eventful one for Tinning. While starting work as a waitress, she expressed interest in becoming a foster parent. After placing a call with the Schenectady County Department of Social Services, she became a foster parent to a child named Robert. This lasted from the fall of 72 until early the following year. He was then replaced with a female child named Linda, but her stay didn't last too long as Tinning became pregnant with their fourth natural-born child, Timothy. Born on Thanksgiving Day 1973, he also was not very long for the world, as he died only a month after his birth from sudden infant death syndrome. To have this many children die in the space of roughly two years is certainly enough to raise suspicion. It wouldn't yet. You'll find out why later. Complicating matters with the fact that Tinning and her husband had started frequently taking to the beef over money troubles. All came to a head sometime in 1974 when Tinning got herself on the granddaddy of all criminal heaters. First, she poisoned Joseph Sr. with what was originally a lethal dose of phenobarbital, though he claimed it was a suicide attempt on his part. Tinning also copped to stealing money from Carol Tinning, her sister-in-law. To complete this triple crown, on May 1st, Tinning called the police claiming that her house had been robbed, though it was sussed out later that she herself had staged the robbery. All this led to Tinning's commitment to a psychiatric facility, though she later escaped without anyone's knowledge. Tinning later returned to work towards the end of 74, and later claimed to a co-worker that she was pregnant with her fifth child, and did so with the proviso that she not tell anyone about it. It was also said of Tinning that God had told her to kill this one too, end quote. On Easter Sunday, March 30th, 1975, a son, Nathan, was born. Sadly, and at this point to no one's surprise, he died during a car ride the day after Labor Day of that year. After a string of sudden child deaths, Tinning wisely decided to lay low on that front. On August 3rd, 1978, Michael became the sixth child ever to grace the Tinning household. Almost three months later, on October 29th, Mary Frances, a daughter, entered this veil of tears as what proved to be child unlucky number seven. Three months later, on January 20th, 1979, Mary Frances was rushed to the hospital unconscious, though she was revived in what the hospital termed as aborted sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. She wouldn't be anywhere as lucky, however, as exactly 31 days later, she was taken back to the hospital in full cardiac arrest. Even though she was revived, she died two days later after being taken off life support due to irreversible brain damage. Nine months later, Tinning brought a decade marked by childbirth and sudden deaths thereof to an end by welcoming a son, Jonathan. Would eight be enough, as the title of a popular sitcom of the day would suggest? For a while, the answer was yes, after Jonathan's death in Albany after four months on life support. By now, you'd probably think that there's something very wrong about Mary Beth Tinning in parenthood. No credence was given to that statement at this stage, not even by the Department of Social Services, who provided the adopted kid to the Tinnings 
who had left no sooner than they arrived. Speaking of whom, Michael fell into that same category in March 1981 at the age of over two and a half years after suffering a fall down the stairs the week before. Around the time your narrator had come into the world, Mary Beth and her husband had moved in with the in-laws. She had also worked a number of odd jobs, supported her church, and even volunteered with the local ambulance corps. After almost a year and with her personal things seemingly pulled together, Mary Beth and Joe bought a trailer in her hometown, only to have it burned soon thereafter. It was later sussed out that she was suspected of setting the blaze. The couple moved to Schenectady in 1983, while still giving her time with the ambulance corps. That became a past tense situation the following summer, when a box stolen from the corps was discovered at her home. Even more ominous, Tinning gave birth to her ninth and final child, you'll find out why very shortly, on August 22, 1985. The female child, Tammy Lynn, died four months later on December 20th after she was smothered to death. If it hadn't yet become apparent to the DSS that something suspicious had been going on with Mary Beth Tinning, Tammy Lynn's death proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Betsy Mannix visited the Tinnings that very day, with Schenectady Police Detective Bob Infeld and State Police Investigator Joseph Karras in tow to discuss the matter. She paid another visit to the house on the day after Christmas and came away overly concerned about Mary Beth's demeanor. As 1986 began, the State Police's Bureau of Criminal Investigation was called in to lend a hand in the investigation of Tammy Lynn's death. After a month, it was declared that Mary Beth was indeed the culprit. She and her husband Joe were separately taken into the State Police Barracks in Loudonville and Schenectady Police Department respectively on February 4th for questioning. Mary Beth confessed to the murders of Tammy Lynn, Nathan, and Timothy. It was the former's murder that led to Mary Beth's arrest after hours of interrogation. On March 15th, Tanning was released on $100,000 bail and awaited her trial. While Tanning was awaiting someone to throw her bail, accusations had started flying within the Schenectady community. Outside this particular bubble, news media across the country had picked up on the story with reports in the New York Times and on the long-running CBS news magazine, 60 Minutes. The autopsies of six of the children showed no signs of abuse, and furthermore, the initial investigation revealed a lack of communication between the doctors responsible for handling the children who didn't receive an autopsy and the medical examiner's office. While inquiries were made into the unknown causes of death for some of the children, the investigation went cold as those were left unanswered. Schenectady Police Chief Richard Nelson stated that some of the certificates did not list a specific cause of death. Ergo, if any of those children died and it was not labeled in any way a homicide, then in theory, no crime was ever committed. On May 29th, three of the bodies were exhumed from the Most Holy Redeemer Cemetery in Niskayuna by order of the police and Schenectady County District Attorney John Porsche. Dr. Thomas Oram chief pathologist at Ellis Hospital, and Dr. Michael Baden examined the bodies at the medical examiner's office. 
It was here that they ran into further trouble, according to Mary Beth's defense attorney, Paul Callahan. Callahan claimed that one of the bodies was not that of the child as a result of confusion over the location of the grave sites. Also, two of the bodies were decomposed to the point that a conclusive examination was out of the question. All the while, Joseph Sr. kept defending his wife's actions. Blind to the fact that Dr. Orm had noted his detachment from both his family in particular and reality in general. When pressed to remember the children's names, he ended up drawing blanks. On June 22, 1987, Mary Beth Tinning stood trial in Schenectady County Court. There was tension in the air even before the trial started when it was announced during pre-trial hearings that her statements would be admissible during the proceedings as they were enforced. Porsche, the district attorney who was the prosecuting attorney during the trial, referenced the 36-page confession in opening statements. Medical testimony soon followed, and according to the damning testimony of Dr. Bradley Ford, a crib monitor was recommended after Tammy Lynn's birth, but was never installed. Dr. Ora makes one last appearance in this story and reiterated that she died of smothering, not sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. Another physician who didn't get on the SIDS train was Dr. Arnulf Copen, a pathologist at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Albany. He asserted that all the Tinning children had different birth defects, going so far as to state that Jonathan had died of Verfig-Hoffman disease, which attacks the spinal column. Another pathologist, Dr. Jack Davies, stated that the cause of death of all nine children was unknown. The prosecution wasn't buying any of what those medicos were selling, so they decided to call Dr. Marie Valdez de Pena, a nationally recognized expert on SIDS, to the stand. The good doctor refuted any and all claims of genetic diseases and birth defects and stated that the deaths were all caused by suffocation with a soft object, according to the July 10th edition of the Knickerbocker News. In all, between the defense and the prosecution, 10 doctors were called to testify and all offered differing opinions on Tammy Lynn's death as well as those of the other children. After all that testimony, the time for closing arguments had arrived. Porsche relied on the jury's common sense to find Tinning guilty, while Callahan appealed to their sense of fair play. The jury, though, pointed out one interesting detail. Tinning did not take the stand in her own defense. On July 17th, after three days of deliberation, Mary Beth Tinning was found guilty of second-degree murder in the death of Tammy Lynn Tinning with a potential sentence of 20 years to life in prison. The jury ran to some confusion at first over the wording of the state's murder statute and then disagreement over whether she intended to kill Tammy Lynn, but it all ended up not mattering in the end. Callahan told the press that he would immediately file an appeal, while Porsche stated that Tinning would stand trial again for the deaths of her eight other children. On October 2nd, Tinning made her last appearance in Schenectady County Court to receive her sentence. Paul Callahan wanted a sentence of 15 years, while John Porsche asked for the maximum sentence. After hearing Tinning's apology, Judge Clifford Hannigan ended up playing both ends down the middle and handed down a sentence of 20 years to life in state prison as prescribed by state law. She was remanded to Schenectady County Jail amid cries of bitch and baby killer.
She was later taken to the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Westchester County, where she was released under lifelong parole on August 21, 2018. An interesting side note to wrap up. Tinning would be indicted on charges of murdering Nathan and Timothy in August of 1989, but the charges were dropped, citing lack of evidence. Thanks for listening to this episode of CR Crime, the only podcast that deals with tales of true crime from New York's capital region. This podcast is written, produced, narrated, and edited by yours truly, Jason Bullitt, also host of the Keep It To Yourself podcast, of which this is an offshoot. If you like this podcast, you can review this and my other podcast, in fact, the whole feed, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choosing. Or better yet, tell a friend and those in your circle. That's the best way that podcasts help get promoted and get more listeners. Until next week, stay safe out there. Bye-bye. On June 22, 1987, Mary Beth Tinning stood trial in Schenectady County Court. There was tension in the air even before the trial started, when it was announced that during pre-trial hearings, her statements would be admissible during the proceedings as they were enforced. Porsche, the DA who was the prosecuting attorney during the... the, the, the